Hey, welcome everybody to week 482 of the quarantine. <laughs> it just feels like it's lasting forever. How are you guys holding up? Angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had my moments over the last week or two. Plenty of opportunity to ask for forgiveness and uh, try to stay out of the shame cave. Wait, I thought pastors didn't sin. What's up with that? <laughs> this one does. <laughs> I never thought that I would miss Baja Burrito so much in my mm. entire life. Mm. Are they shut down? They are. They're not open yet. Edley's finally added tacos back to their yeah. menu. And I saw that, and I think I might have shed a tear or two. Then I went and got some. It mm-hmm. was fantastic. Someone gifted us with a order of Burger Up this week, and included in it was a to-go cocktail, a to-go old-fashioned, because they can legally do that now. And it was a quarantine gift that was much needed. So we're surviving at the Cherry House. So, so far we have pastors who are sinners and drinkers. So, Brant, what would you like to add to the demise of this group? Oh, I feel like we're we're consistently talking about how we're going to make decisions about seeing people and not seeing people and how that's going to go. And that's just a conversation we have needed the Lord's help on a lot in our house. Just figuring yeah. out how to have that conversation a day at a time, that we don't have to have our plan for six months from now for how we're going to do this, but that we're just making decisions kind of as they come. What's it like to prepare for a baby in quarantine? I will only say this because my wife has said it, but she just forgets that she's pregnant sometimes just because we have a two-year-old. <laughs> right. Do you forget that she's pregnant? Uh, pass. so we have sinner pastors drinking pastors and pastors that don't tell the truth so let's just dive right in Uh, because speaking of children today's story is about a short person right (laughs) so who's gonna be reading for us today that's me a person experiencing shortness randy it's people first language okay oh okay oh my gosh so read us the passage brent this is luke 19 he entered jericho and was passing through And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For most of us, it's a pretty familiar story, but it's almost impossible to read this story without thinking about a cartoon character. This hmm. Almost seems like a cartoon because we have fun songs about it and kid songs and drawings. But when you think about the heartbeat of this, this is a pretty serious story about a very real person. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus talks about that salvation has come to Zacchaeus's house, what's happening here? There's all these mentions of even that phrase or kind of that idea all throughout the passage. 
when Jesus first speaks to Zacchaeus, he says something that Dave you know, pointed out in his sermon, but he says, I must stay at your house today. And then later on, he says, salvation has come to your house today. He, Jesus is salvation, and he must come to Zacchaeus' house. It's this kind of overwhelming theme that Jesus is the first mover, that he moves first, and he moves towards people that he is coming after. And that's kind of the heartbeat of the whole story is that Jesus is the one pursuing Zacchaeus in the story, not the other way around. And it's really important to point out, too, that Jesus, he's pursuing someone who is a really unlikely person to be pursued, at least in the context of this time. And we see it in the people grumbling about Zacchaeus. Yeah, you know, I'd like for you guys just to get a little bit fundamental with me just for a second. And we see it all over the world, the words Jesus saves. What does salvation actually mean? What is Jesus saving Zacchaeus from? What is this whole idea that Jesus came to earth to save? That's what the whole last sentence says. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's saving us from our lostness, that uh, while we were enemies of God, Jesus moved towards us. So he saved us not only from our lostness, he saved us from what our lostness deserved, and he saved us for himself and from himself, so to speak. There's a saving which implies a need for saving. I think we see in this passage the way that our lostness looks like separation, right? Zacchaeus is someone who's really lost, and it's totally cut him off from community. And so our our lostness, another way to say it would be our sin, it's broken us in terms of all of our relationships with ourselves, with other people, and with God. And Jesus coming to seek us is to restore us to relationship with him, to find us in him, that we would be found in him, that we would be with him now and into forever. And it also involves this restoration into a community, into the family of God, that now we've been brought into the house and we're a part of something that we weren't a part of before. It's really good when we talk about this being lost we could almost say that we've lost our belonging and that Jesus is restoring something that we all hunger for. would love for you guys to speak a little bit about why did God make us to belong so much? Not just, I think, Brent, what you said is belong not only to God, but to belong to a people, but also belong to ourselves. Dave, speak into that. God created us to be in relationship with him, and that was always the intention You know, when we say that Zacchaeus was such an unlikely character for Jesus to come after, that's because of, and we'll get into some of this, just the kind of extreme expression of sins that we see in Zacchaeus's life. But the reality is, is we're all unlikely characters because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so sin, sin coming into the world fractured that relationship with the Lord and therefore fractured our capacity to experience what we were created for, which was to be face-to-face with him in relationship with him in that way. And so it's definitely what our heart's deepest desires and longings are about and what we're made for. And so without going into all the kind of systematic realities of how salvation occurs, I think what Elliot said is really true. If, If that relationship is going to be repaired if that's going to change, it's going to have to happen on God's initiation. And I think I said this on some levels in the sermon, religion is always about me doing something in order to repair the relationship. Like I have to perform or or get it right. If you consult the entire Bible, you'll realize 
man was hopeless to get it right. Uh, no matter all the great attempts to keep the law perfectly, we couldn't do it. So we needed him to initiate and to come and do what we could never do for ourselves to give us the very thing that we were created for. That's why where he says there, since he also is a son of Abraham, that's that's a, kind of a wink to the covenants of saying, like Abraham was chosen not because he was fantastic, but because I chose him to be my people and for me to be in relationship with and to bless. It's always been from the very beginning since the fall, an act of God moving towards his people to reestablish that relationship of belonging and you know, eventually consummated where we will be one day with him face to face. And I think one of the things that's striking about this story of Jesus coming to seek and save and restore and make us belong is just who this guy is. And we can talk about what it means to be a tax collector and the rottenness of that in that day, but that means he was very wealthy. And so Jesus doesn't delineate, Jesus doesn't um, differentiate between rich or poor or socioeconomic classes. You can be lost and have no money and you can be lost and have a bunch of money. I love this about our Jesus is that he seems to always go to the most unlikely places to bring salvation. It's almost as if he he goes to the people that do not belong the worst (laughs) to bring into belonging, which maybe it's to give hope to the rest of us. But this guy is like a giant goober, isn't he? Let's talk about this guy because he had more going against them than just being short, right? Not that short people have anything going against them. I just want to tell you that, Elliot, (laughs) on behalf of all the short guys on this podcast. Person experiencing shortness. (laughs) But talk to me about Zacchaeus. What do we know about him from this story? Yeah, it says he was a chief tax collector, which meant he had been a part of the tax collection squad for a while and worked his way to the top, I guess. You know, the word there is arch tax collector, and I think taxes were collected in three principal places, Jerusalem and Capernaum and Jericho, and he's over Jericho, so... He is kind of the top of the tax collection pyramid, and the way that that worked, the Jews were underneath Roman rule, as Rome required a certain amount of tax. And these guys were empowered with Roman protection to go collect those taxes from their own people and how they made their livelihood. So how he became wealthy was basically taking beyond what Rome required for himself. So he was, in effect, a protected thief from his own people. And so probably a a remarkably lonely and isolated and contempt-worthy individual because he's effectively a part of a a scheme to steal from his own people for his own wealth. This is the guy that we all go, boo, when he walks into the story, right? Yeah, my family, my kids and my wife and I watched Robin Hood last week, the old Disney movie, which it's a phenomenal Disney classic. But other than Prince John in the movie, I mean, the guy that my kids just despise the most is the oh, sheriff yeah. who does exactly this. He's coming in and taking taxes from the poor and getting a little extra and keep putting it in his pocket. And, and my kids despise him. Yeah, because here here's a picture of a guy who is despicable, but he's it's also a picture of a guy who doesn't belong. He's not a Roman, so he doesn't belong to the Romans. He's a Jew, but he's not a part of the community. In fact, we see in the story, nobody even moves so that he can see Jesus coming. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me to compare him to other people in other stories that people don't seem to like. Like when prostitutes come to Jesus, it's the religious leaders who kind of throw shade at him for doing that. But in this situation, it's not the religious leaders who are grumbling against Jesus for embracing the tax collector. It's just normal people. 
So, you know, it's easy for me to get in the framework of understanding, well, the Pharisees were religious leaders, so they didn't like it when sinners came to Jesus. But this is just average, ordinary people who are following Jesus who aren't letting Zacchaeus through, who don't like Zacchaeus. So what is it about grace that if you're around Jesus long enough, grace is going to offend you? What is it about that? Because these people were offended by the idea that Jesus wanted to go to Zacchaeus' house. Does he not know who this guy is? And grace always seems to flow to the most despicable places. And we all go, that's great because I'm kind of despicable. And that kind of really speaks to the fact that even in church, I kind of believe that I'm still a little better than Zacchaeus instead of I'm just like Zacchaeus. And so grace kind of shocks me. Yeah, I was sharing this with our small group the other night that when it really comes down to it, I hate grace, (laughs) if I'm honest. I love religion. I love law. And I love having a view of myself that I'm somebody who can keep the mark and that really God's affection towards me is his appreciation of me that I did a good job. And because I did that, he loves me and he sees me and he chooses me. So oftentimes my perception of my own brokenness or my own sin is profoundly limited and it can get exposed when I see his grace go to somebody that I personally would say, there's no reason you should love that person because they've crossed some threshold that I have. There really is a threshold that I have for me that if I cross that threshold, I wouldn't love me and there's no way you could love me. So when they cross that threshold in my mind, they move into a category that they don't deserve that kind of affection. It's almost what we talked about with the elder brother. Mm-hmm. Zacchaeus is a different form of the younger mm-hmm. brother in that sense. And and I can easily find myself saying, yeah, no, no thanks for Here's that. Here's the line. Here's the line. Mm-hmm. And he's too far gone. Mm-hmm. I remember being in a Sunday service, Randy, when you said that if you go to small group and you seem to get along with everyone, like if you go to small group and you don't complain about someone when you leave small group, you're the person that everyone's complaining about. <laughs> and, and you said, everybody is somebody's hard to love. And I remember that so clearly because it was the first time in my life that I had actually considered the fact that I was somebody's hard to love. Right. And I, I know that about other people. And was Randy looking at you when he said that? <laughs> we didn't know each that. other then. But. <laughs> well, you know, it's true. Before you finish your story, you know, there... The truth is, is that there's something about all of us that makes it nearly impossible for people in our lives to love us. I mean, everybody's somebody's hard to love sounds like a killer country song for the record. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember thinking, oh, that is true about me. And I have never thought about that reality before. That's how blind I am to my own sin. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to here is that we all have that living in us of... Well, I, I know that other people are like that, but I would I would never. And what makes grace offensive is that I have to be willing to accept that I'm hard to love, and yet there are still people in my life who choose to love me anyway. And that kind of a gift is a gift that I can't extort from them, I can't deserve from them. It's a gift that they just choose to give me because they choose to give it to me. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about, and I, I, want, Elliot, I want to bring Elliot into this conversation because... At least Zacchaeus wasn't so despicable that he didn't seek Jesus, right? Wasn't that the (laughs) redeeming thing about Zacchaeus? I mean, he climbed a tree. It's almost like going to church. He walked the aisle, right? 
We're not told intentionally by Luke why he climbed the tree, what drove him to do that. We know on some level, though, he was curious about Jesus. And he may have been curious and he may have been afraid. He may have been curious. He may have been intrigued. He may have been curious and confused. But he's up in the tree because the people hate him. They would not make room for him to come get a a view of Jesus. It kind of speaks to his despicable uh, reputation. So he's up in the tree and it can start to look like as you read the story that, man, Zacchaeus might have been despised, but look at how hard he worked to go get just a glimpse of Jesus. But Jesus and Luke, who tells the story, doesn't let the reader believe that, that actually in whatever mysterious way uh, you want to look at it, Zacchaeus was up in the tree because Jesus was coming after him. And that's clear all throughout. Jesus even wraps up the story by saying, the son of man came to seek and save. Jesus is the seeker here, and whatever he ordained in the curiosity of Zacchaeus, whatever he prompted in the curiosity and the tree climbing of Zacchaeus, he was doing that so that he could go and find Zacchaeus, not so that, man, didn't Zacchaeus such a hard seeker that he finally found what he was looking for? So let me get this straight, okay? I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, is that uh, Jesus started seeking Zacchaeus before he ever saw him in the tree. And you're saying that Zacchaeus' curiosity that led him to that tree was actually the Holy Spirit seeking out Zacchaeus before he saw Jesus. Yes. I'm nodding my head if you can't see it in the podcast. So you're just hearing minds blow all over Nashville and the world. Dave, would you talk to us about this curiosity of Zacchaeus is not just exclusive to him. This seems to be one of the ways the Holy Spirit works by drawing us to Jesus by making us curious. Man, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. What Elliot was saying is really true, that the punch of the story is that it all seems to be speaking to Zacchaeus's, you know, movement, climbing up the tree and all this, but then you, you don't get the sense that Zacchaeus knew he was going to get called out until he does. And the Lord says his name and calls him down and they go to the house and we see a pretty big transformation in Zacchaeus's life right there. But what this showcases really is, and there's a lot of theology around what I'm about to say, and a lot of scripture that would support this, is that the Holy Spirit is doing a regenerative work in the heart before we begin to see the evidence of that externally, where people are acknowledging things or understanding things. And Okay, stop for a second, Dave, because we just got to underline this, because I think what you just said is that Jesus really starts to change us from the inside out, and that even in community, oftentimes, we don't see fruit of change before we see change. Yeah, absolutely. We don't see the fruit. The change begins to happen long before we even understand that it has happened. I mean, I think oftentimes if you talk to somebody who's been a believer for a long time, and even as I'm thinking about things like when we do elder interviews and say, hey, tell us your story, it's always amazing to me how few people can actually talk about they knew exactly when they became a Christian, that it was more of this kind of progressive thing where, yeah, maybe there was there were some like real signpost moments, but almost everybody has a version of realizing that God was either using another person or using a circumstance or a situation to awaken them to their need and their desire for this relationship with him, that the kind of the the tremors that come before the earthquake, those tremors are the work of the Holy Spirit. They're oftentimes hard 
to really know exactly what's going on. It, it takes somebody who knows how to read earthquakes <laughs> to know, hey, that's what's happening right now is, is an earthquake's about to happen. And when he climbs up in that tree, which would have been an act really of risking exposure, of being seen kind of childish by the crowd, it would have been something that a grown, respectable man doesn't do. And even the crowd makes it clear there, like when he goes, Jesus goes to his house, they have a bad view of him. So one of the tremors of the Lord's work I see in this is he's taking a, a risk here for whatever reason. <laughs> we don't know fully. He's outwardly acting in a way that means there's an inward tremor going on. And he's beginning to kind of come awake. And we see Jesus wakes him up pretty quickly here. But that's a picture of the fact that curiosity was moving and stirring him to take a step to where the crowd's view of him <laughs> and even his view of him weren't the biggest thing. He was, I got to get a look at Jesus. I, I got to see Jesus. I think that what we can say, we all would agree that the Holy Spirit still works this way, not exclusively, but a lot of times he works by stirring our own curiosities. And when we don't know that, it's easy for us to misunderstand our curiosity. How does the Holy Spirit stir curiosity in our lives? Maybe even talk about some of the ways we misunderstand our curiosity. I think that curiosity uh, is such a shared experience, but we don't necessarily know how to explain when we're experiencing it. They can feel like a lot of different things. I think that uh, this is somewhat where our emotions can help guide us and be you know, tour guides into our curiosity. But you might be afraid of life circumstances right now, relationships or coronavirus and quarantine reopenings. And uh, you might be angry in your house uh, or angry with your job. You might be afraid of finances. You might be despairing about the world, despairing about your own spiritual state. Whatever you're experiencing, many times those experiences are meant to be uh, sparks to light a curiosity fire that you would actually, uh, we would actually begin to listen to our emotions, not necessarily obey them and let them be Lord over us, but we would say, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm afraid of this relationship. I'm afraid of my bank account. I'm afraid of this next season of life. What is that showing me about me? What's that showing me about you? And curiosity always asks questions, but it doesn't necessarily use those questions as a defense mechanism. It uses those questions to maybe go find someone to talk to. It uses those questions to go ask the Lord. It uses those questions to go to his word. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but I would say, listen to your own life. You're constantly, we're constantly curious, and our curiosity bug may be being itched by what we're experiencing emotionally. I think one of the words that I use when I'm curious is the word concerned. You know, if I'm talking about somebody that I care about and I say I'm really concerned about, I'm really worried about, that oftentimes that really is an invitation to curiosity. Because when I say I'm concerned, what I've done often is I've written a narrative that I'm trusting is true, that um, may not actually be true. And so I, I'm learning to understand that instead as curiosity, that well, maybe that makes me curious about why my, my friend made this choice or why this person is living that way. Maybe I don't understand all of what's going on in their life. And so what I initially experience as concern actually is something that draws me toward them with questions. And I think in my, in my relationship with God and our relationships with God, 
that can also look like uh, doubt, or we can use the word doubt. However, I'm really wrestling with doubt right now. And often when I, when I say that, or when people say that, what we're saying is, I've got questions. And the invitation is not to be afraid of those questions, but to actually ask them to God, because God is okay with our questions. We so often misunderstand curiosity, and so we try to medicate our curiosity. Not always. Pain's not always the fruit of curiosity, but sometimes the pain of loneliness is the curious cry for belonging. God gives us this beautiful emotion called loneliness because it shows us that we were made for relationships with ourselves, with others, and with God, which now mixed with the Holy Spirit draws us to the curiosity that desperately wants to know Jesus. So Dave, speak into that. When I think about curiosity, I think the word even curious can get a bad rap and it's almost reduced to like a child is curious. But adults aren't supposed to be curious. They're supposed to be competent and they're supposed to be capable. And to be curious requires humility and it requires faith because it's an acknowledgement that I don't know and I want to know, but I don't know. So one of the dangers is that anytime I'm curious, Scripture makes this really clear that there's always a battle front for that curiosity to go in the direction that you just talked about, Randy which is that I was made to belong and to be in this relationship with my Heavenly Father. And in some ways, I think maybe even be eternally curious, like eternally discovering the depth of who He is and what this relationship is all about. But there's an enemy that wants me to not move towards the Holy Spirit in my curiosity or or follow the Holy Spirit's lead in my curiosity. And that enemy oftentimes wants to take me down narratives that oftentimes have me focused on the fact that I do feel all alone and that it is all up to me. And then it has me thinking about, and this is kind of the curiosity killer, is what is my capacity or the conclusions that I draw about what that doubt means or what that fear means or what that loneliness means. And so I know for me, one of the times that I know I've left the Holy Spirit's boat is when I'm living in conclusions not in curiosity, but I, I make conclusions about what's happening right now and conclusions about what the future is going to look like. And at that point, there, there is no humility. There is no faith because I, I know. So when I know, then I've lost my curiosity. This is really a powerful truth that you guys are talking about. And let me try to underline it is that the Holy Spirit often speaks to me through my curiosity. And I often hear people say to me, how do you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? And this is revolutionary, what you guys are saying, is that my curiosity is often the voice of the Holy Spirit that's leading me deeper into a relationship with myself, with others, and with God. And what we see in this story is that this man's curiosity, which you're saying is fueled by the Holy Spirit, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, combined with this guy's willingness to follow the Holy Spirit, even though he didn't know he was doing that, and climb Mm -hmm. the tree, which caused him to meet Jesus— And then through the power of the Holy Spirit after meeting Jesus, he does the absolute impossible, Mm -hmm. which is he spent his whole life getting stuff from people, and now his whole life has changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's now giving. Could you guys talk a little bit about why this is a big deal in this story? I'm reminded of a story I heard this week along the lines of how our curiosity when married with the Holy Spirit's leading changes us in beautiful ways. I heard a story this week about N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, and he has written 
far more than any of us could ever read probably. But right before he was about to write his fourth or fifth book on Jesus, his wife said, you've already written all these books about Jesus and now you want to write another one. Has Jesus really changed? Like, have you, like is, what else do you need to say about him? He said, Jesus hasn't changed, but I have. And there's more to discover because I'm changing. It's just this almost beautifully insatiable quest to know more about Jesus. And then as that's happening, know more about myself, like you said, Randy, know more about others and know more about Jesus. I'm constantly being changed. And so there's new diamonds and there's new treasures, the quest of curiosity that changes me, so to speak. I think one of the beautiful parts of what we see in the back half here of Zacchaeus making all of these just pretty remarkable commitments of restoring things fourfold and paying back half of my goods to the poor, giving half of my goods to the poor. There were legal requirements when he stole from people, and he was taking kind of the the highest line here, the strictest uh, view of what was required of him, but it was never required to give half of what you had to the poor. And so the picture here isn't just, hey, man, Zacchaeus really went pretty far. Uh, The picture was Zacchaeus all of a sudden was going from being a guy who leveraged everything in his life for his own gain to a person who was bankrupting his own estate for those who he had taken from, who he had wronged. The power of that is really that it reflects in a way what Jesus has done for us, but Jesus wasn't the offender. Jesus wasn't Zacchaeus. He hadn't stolen a bunch of stuff. He had given a bunch of stuff and it had been squandered, and then he comes and gives more. Philippians 2 talks about this, that he emptied himself and basically took everything upon himself so that we could be called, you know, sons and daughters. And so Jesus is the ultimate bankruptor of his estate. And so the fact that we see Zacchaeus doing that, it's almost, it's the evidence of salvation. It didn't earn him his salvation. It's proof that he was saved because he's actually starting to look like the very Jesus that had come for him. Yeah, it's beautiful. He experienced restoration and belonging with Jesus, and now Jesus and the Holy Spirit are helping him restore his belonging back to his community. It's really beautiful. I'm thinking about how earlier in Luke, just a few chapters before this, Jesus speaks to this guy who we call the rich young ruler, someone who came to Jesus who had a lot of money, and Jesus said, hey, this is going to cost you everything. And it says that that man walked away sad and he says, to get to heaven, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And I think we often read that, and it, just as Americans, it can be very discouraging. Like, oh, I guess there's there's no hope for us. And we can get so kind of twisted around, and well, how much do I have to give in order to prove to Jesus that I'm giving enough that I really care? What Zacchaeus does is he, he blows all of that out of the water for us. There, it is possible for people who have a lot of money to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that what Zacchaeus does is he joyfully engages with generosity because of what he's been given. And it's not about him measuring, has he done enough to prove to Jesus that generosity has been given to him? He's totally escaped this whole land of counting and proving that he's given enough into the joy of being generous because of what he's been given. So I'd love for us to kind of end our time together talking a little bit about the Holy Spirit-led Zacchaeus through curiosity to climb a tree where he met Jesus and restoration to his heavenly father, to himself and to his community. What does it look like in today right here in Nashville when the Holy Spirit moves? What does it look like for us to climb trees? Where do I go to see Jesus? 
one of the things that's encouraging about this story is it's in our Bible, it's in our text, so it is a it is a memorable story. But for Zacchaeus, it was a very mundane or just insignificant thing for him to do to say, like, I just want to go see Jesus. That's what's guiding him and leading his curiosity that's Holy Spirit induced. But I think that without a need for the spectacular encounter with Jesus, he just wanted to go get eyes on Jesus. And I think that for us today, to put down some of the demand for spectacular encounters, there's some really just normal ways that we can meet with Jesus. And it may sound intimidating, but Jesus has spoken to us through his word, and that's a very normal way to stir and to continue to feed the curiosity that we may have about this Jesus. And I think that it may lack some of our demands for the spectacular when we do that, but it is a way that we climb the tree to to see Jesus. I think one of the ways, you know, there at the very beginning, he says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead. I know for me in different stretches of my life, if my first attempt doesn't work, I can kind of get deflated and I love that Zacchaeus is, okay, I'm going to try again, and I'm going to go a little bit further, and I'm going to climb up that tree. And even acknowledging that that because you do have an adversary that doesn't want you to discover what your heart's truly made for, that oftentimes the first attempt isn't going to work, and not misunderstanding what that not working is about, and going back. Trusting that I know for a lot of people, they would say things to me like, um, and I've had this experience myself, you know, I spend time in the Word, I get nothing out of the Word. Oftentimes, it's because I was, like you said, Elliot, I'm looking for some kind of spectacular, you know, clouds parting and, you know, God speaking to me in direct, you know, revelation experience when the Lord's trying to build something more like a brotherly relationship where I'm not always coming to you just to get some pearl, So I do think that one of the practical things is just keep going back. And also, if all you've got is a grumpy crowd that's fighting against you, maybe you need to find different friends, people that can help hold you accountable to going back and who aren't forcing you to climb a tree, but they want to bring you to the front so that you can actually encounter Jesus. I just think we underestimate the resistance Mm -hmm. uh, that we're under that Mm -hmm. wants to just deform our curiosity and form it in the wrong ways. And it takes some perseverance, which is also a gift of the Holy Spirit. So good. A really helpful starting place, I think, can be recognizing that Jesus does see us, right? That my desire to see Jesus and climb the tree to see him is fueled by the fact that I know that he sees me. And that's a Jesus that I want to see more of. That if Jesus is hiding and he's waiting, it's like we're playing a game of hide and seek and he's a really good hider. Like that can kind of get frustrating after a while. But to know that Jesus sees me, I think is is something that encourages me to keep looking for him. I think about, there's this catechism book that we have that we're using with our daughter. And one of the questions is, can you see God? And the answer is, no, but God always sees me. And that that's an essential truth for my two-year-old to know and is an essential truth for us to know as we are curious about Jesus in our own lives. Yeah, and I'd love for you, Brant, just to speak to the person that uh, has never met Jesus and maybe listening to this podcast, and it's stirring a curiosity in them. What does it look like for them to climb that tree? Yeah, I would 
want to encourage you, that is the Holy Spirit working in your life. You may have no familiarity with that term. That may sound kind of weird, uh, but that is something that is worth celebrating. Your curiosity is something that's worth celebrating. And climbing that tree, being curious about Jesus could look like opening up a Bible that you've had sitting on your shelf for a long time and somewhere in the New Testament, even in the book of Luke, and poking around in there and just seeing what comes up. And I promise you, there are going to be things you have questions about. And what I would encourage you in in that is uh, maybe you'd be willing to not go to the Google machine (laughs) because I'm just going to tell you, there's some weird stuff in there about Jesus that's just not true. (laughs) Instead, would you take that curiosity to someone who you uh, have seen who is a Christian? And maybe even someone in your life who you know is a Christian who also kind of looks like the Jesus that we see here, Hmm. who uh, would want to celebrate your curiosity with you. One of the things that we've lost uh, in many ways in the busyness of life that maybe the quarantine has brought back is the gift of listening and being silent long enough to listen to what your life is telling you. And the Holy Spirit often works through our lives. In fact, I think it was Mother Teresa who said that listening is the beginning of prayer and silence is the journey of that. And it's a scary thing to listen to your heart and to realize that there are curious hungers in there that nothing seems to be able to satisfy. And part of climbing that tree is listening and then being willing to cry out to God and cry out to community and even cry out to yourself in this journey of being healed. That's our prayer for you guys and for ourselves. I can tell you that we are the first in line to drink deeply of the curiosity of the Holy Spirit that draws us to Jesus and heals us. So Dave, um, would you pray for us as we end our time together? Absolutely. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, that in this little story, 10 verses long, we in many ways see the entire picture of your salvation work. Lord, no matter how far gone uh, we may feel we are, and Zacchaeus was pretty far gone, that you love stopping in the middle of a crowd to catch our eyes and to call us down and to come and stay. What a powerful picture, Lord, of your choice, your affection, your friendship, your love, even when we weren't in a place of meriting any of that. I pray, Lord, uh, that that wouldn't just be theology for us, Lord, that whether we've known that for a long time or whether we're hearing that for the first time on this podcast, Lord, that that the idea that um, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence, locked eyes with us and said our name and said, I must come to your house, that that would restore us uh, profoundly to the joy of our salvation and that we'd bear the fruit of that, Lord, that you'd make us uh, men and women who now take inventory and joyful response to being seen by you would see the world around us very, very differently. And we would become those who, uh, with radical generosity and from the abundance of our Heavenly Father, give even to crazy places, bankrupt ourselves in ways for others so that they can get a glimpse of who you really are and what you've done for us. So we love you. Pray that we would uh, stay curious, that we wouldn't draw conclusions about our emotions and feelings, but can bring those to you and to others. And would you awaken us to the truth of what's oftentimes buried deeply beneath those feelings, which is a desire for you. We love you. In your name, amen. No, I do.